Congregation, we all like a good story, don't we? I know I'm especially drawn to a story where of rivals, rivals putting their differences aside to fight or to battle a common foe. I guess I'm always wondering, how long will this alliance last? When will the old feelings resurface? As some of you know, I'm a huge football fan. And even more so to say I'm a fan of the Calgary Stampeders. Well, our arch rival, our nearest enemies, are the Edmonton Eskimos to the north and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders to the east. As you might guess, when it comes to my CFL, there is no real redeeming qualities for a team wearing green for me. Can you imagine, can you imagine an alliance with fans of those two teams? Yeah, me neither. Except maybe, maybe a communal loathing or disdain for the other one left out. Similarly, you would not expect to see Superman aligning with Lex Luthor. What about Batman aligning with the Joker? What about Captain America with Winter Soldier? Now, why would I even mention this? Well, as unlikely as these alignments are, as improbable as they are, in today's scripture we have a similar, very unlikely alignment. So let's uh, turn to Matthew 16, shall we? Before we read, let's open with our prayer, shall we? Father God, we come to you this morning, Lord, as we open your word. We pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts so that we may receive this message you have for us. Lord, we know from scripture that your word, it's living. Your word's active. And as we open scripture this morning, we pray that it may cut through our thoughts, thoughts that are coming between us and you. May your word challenge us may your word change us change us to be the men and women that you have called us to be may your word and you flow from us this morning this morning and this coming week as well we ask these things in your name amen <clears throat> matthew 16 the pharisees and the sadducees came to jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. He replied, When evening comes, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning today will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, 
but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees. They discussed this amongst themselves and said, It is because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls were gathered? you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood <clears throat> that he was not talking, telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, <clears throat> he asked disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, Who do you say I am? Simon Peter <clears throat> answered, You're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and chief priests and the teachers of the law, but that he must be killed and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the, the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then Jesus said to the disciples, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul. For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with the angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. The word of our Lord. As Harriet was so kind to bring me an application for my sermon, we will use it. Thank you very much. <laughs> Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
My little intro about the rivalry in sports teams and about unlikelihood of foes becoming friends, or at least temporary allies, is a scenario we lead off with this morning. You see, congregation, we have a coming together of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. This is not an inconsequential thing. Both were critical of and were criticized by Jesus. This is part of the common ground they share. As both groups have been sharply criticized by Jesus, they now both share a disdain for Jesus. And if Jesus were discredited, if he were to disappear, well, that would greatly benefit them both. So they have developed this uneasy alliance till in their minds this Jesus problem is dealt with. Just a little history. The Sadducees, the Sadducees thought of themselves as the conservatives or as the old believers. This is because they accepted only the written law of Moses as authoritative and rejected all subsequent revelation. As a result, the Sadducees denied many of the doctrines held by the Pharisees and Jesus, including the resurrection of the dead, as well as the existence of angels and spirits. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were a lay group, more representative of the common man. In addition to the written law of Moses, the Pharisees accepted as authoritative the rest of what, for us, is the Old Testament, as well as the tradition of the elders. Whereas the Sadducees saw worship at the temple as the main focus of the law, the Pharisees believed this to be but one component among many of the proper Mosaic observances. It was over the interpretation of the law and which understanding of it represented the authentic tradition of Israel that Jesus and the Pharisees disagreed. Like me and my football analogy, the one thing to bring them together was a common disdain or hatred. And for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the recipient of that disdain is Jesus Christ. They are not just there to oppose Jesus. They want him gone. They want him out. Make no mistake what they want is to see him dead. They have a common threat in Jesus Christ. He stands in opposition, and Jesus is a threat to their leadership. Jesus is a threat to their privileged position, their privileged high-ranking position in the community. When they tempt Jesus to show a sign... It is not that they're looking for proof of Jesus' lordship, but they're looking for a way for Jesus to discredit himself and for Jesus to lose face with the community. If, in their plan, Jesus fails to do what they have described that he should do, perform a specific test, the people may well turn on Jesus, and thus he would be publicly discredited, disgraced, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees would once and all 
be rid of Jesus. That was their plan. This month, we've been going through Matthew, and it has been through the lens of faith. We see faith in the definition in Hebrews that, of course, says faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. As for the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they are very zealous. They're very passionate. What they lack is the faith to see that Jesus is the Messiah promised by God in the Old Testament. They lack the faith to see that Jesus Christ is not the enemy that they perceive, but the fulfillment of the law that they themselves are trying to preserve. Jesus refuses to perform as an actor for them and instead points out the irony that they can interpret the signs of nature. You have a saying that goes, red sky at night, sailors delight. Red sky at morning, sailors take warning. You find it easy enough, says Jesus, to forecast the weather. Why can't you read the signs of the times? An evil and a malicious generation is always looking for signs and wonders, Jesus continues. The only sign you'll get is a sign of Jonah. In reality, and unbeknown to them at the time, what they ask, they really do eventually get. When Jesus says, the only sign you're going to get is a sign of Jonah. As teachers and guardians of the law, they are well acquainted with the account of Jonah. The sign of Jonah is not a sign that Jonah brings, but instead Jonah is the sign. Jonah appearing in Nineveh was a sign, sign that the message that he carried was from God, because it was only through God that he could have been delivered. His life spared from certain death. Remember, Jonah was tossed out, tossed out of a ship on open seas. There is no way, humanly speaking, that he could survive being tossed out there. If it was even slightly plausible, these men that threw him overboard... They wouldn't have been so scared to throw him overboard. But remember what they said. They cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, Lord, have done as you pleased. The sign of Jonah was him returning to Nineveh after spending three days in the belly of a fish. After three days in the belly of a fish, he came to publicly preach, showing that God had a task for him and that God truly cared for these people of Nineveh. The sign that would be coming was Jesus walking around after being crucified, after being in the belly of the earth for three days, showing that he conquered death. Jesus has already shown multiple signs performed many miracles. 
And likely these religious leaders have seen them firsthand. In their minds, if their minds were open, these would be suffice evidence that the long-awaited Messiah was standing before them. But to a closed mind, no amount of miracles, no matter how great the sign, an unbelieving heart remains a stubborn, unbelieving heart. Jesus recognizes their evil intentions and turns from them and walks away. As Matthew 16 picks up again, we have fast-forwarded our scene. In my commentary, I read, Jesus and disciples have crossed from the Jewish sector on the northwest shore to the Gentile-inhabited northeast shore. Completely different demographics. Suddenly, almost of a random thought, if it were not Jesus, comes a warning to Jesus to watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The disciples initially think about bread. And now since they've crossed over to the Gentile sector, this trip is definitely going to be longer than they initially thought. And believe they're being chastised for being ill-prepared. Jesus gently reminds them of the two miraculous feedings, and if they truly needed physical bread, Jesus could amply supply that. Then they understand that Jesus was speaking of the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees when he mentions yeast. Yeast. This is a joy for me. As it's a chance for my experience in my former career to come into this, uh, to come into preaching here. I used to be a baker, so I, the use of yeast was a daily occurrence. When, breaking, when making bread, use a very small amount of yeast. Now you think if we looked really hard, really, really hard, I mean, do you think we could find a grain of yeast in here? Well, for one thing, it's dispersed, but another thing is dissolved. But it's very small amount, right? If you bake bread, you take the amount of flour you put in, you take the amount of water you put in, and then you take the minute amount of yeast you put in. <clears throat> but that little bit of yeast, it infiltrates the entire batch of dough and alters that entire batch of dough. Earlier on in chapter 13, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> and he used the example of yeast to show the inconspicuous saturation of yeast that transforms the entire batch of dough. So also the kingdom of heaven transforms the entire earth. Though initially starting as a small group of believers, Christianity is now throughout the whole earth saturated the entire earth. But in this case, it's in the negative that Jesus is speaking. Jesus says, watch out. Watch out for the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What starts off as a small deception and corruption can saturate throughout and destroy what is good. Showing what 
a threat these groups are to Jesus and his mission. The fact that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are so diametrically opposed, yet are united on their attack against Jesus, that ought to be a sign to the disciples to watch out and not get trapped in their words and be diverted from the truth. And if the Pharisees and the Sadducees can sidetrack these disciples, how much more the common people who do not have the training from Jesus that this inner group does? The message for us is the same. What starts out as a small deception and corruption can saturate throughout and destroy what is good. We need to ask ourselves a question. What in our culture, where in our life, in our way of life, is there the yeast of the Pharisees that is saturating our lives, taking us away from the truth of the gospel? Have you ever thought how these things can slowly but steadily erode our faith? Just think of this personally. What in your life used to repulse you, absolutely repulse you? I would never go there. I would never let my family go there. Does it still? Does it still repulse you, or is it just a little inconvenient now? A little yeast slowly, almost inconspicuously, transforms a batch of dough. How about the reality that the religious groups diametrically opposed to each other are still united on attacks against the Church of Christ? And how this is very similar to the Sadducees and Pharisees, though in opposition to each other, unite in attacking Christ. As we move forward in the text, we continue to observe the shift in Jesus' ministry. As he moves away from Galilee to Caesarea, a predominantly Gentile area governed by Philip the Tetrarch, son of Herod the Great. Now up to this point, Jesus has used the term son of man to describe himself and his ministry. Jesus now asks the disciples how the area people refer to Jesus. What is he known for? according to the people. How do they regard Jesus? As Matthew Henry says, the people would talk more freely to the disciples. They were common people as well. So their speech to disciples was a lot less guarded. They might feel freer to talk about Jesus than to speak with Jesus. We do see from the accounts of the disciples that the people believed Jesus to be one of the great prophets raised from the dead. This somewhat, anyway, reveals that the people view Jesus in an extraordinary sense. Seeing him more than a man, but not attributing Messiahship to him. The first thought or belief is that Jesus is John the Baptist, risen from the dead. This belief is attributed to Herod, Herod Antipas, for when he heard about all that Jesus was doing, believed Jesus to be John the Baptist, due largely to the miracles he was performing. <clears throat> the second thought that Jesus might have been Elijah. This is taken from the prophecy of Malachi 4, verse 5. 
It says this, See, I will send a prophet, the prophet Elijah, to you before the great and dread, dreadful day the Lord comes. This is due to the, to the line drawn that since Elijah did many miracles, and Jesus also performed many miracles, Jesus must be Elijah, raised from the dead. But Jesus, just a few chapters earlier in Matthew, had said that John the Baptist was the Elijah who was to come. Lastly, it was believed that Jesus was Jeremiah, raised from the dead, who is also referred to as the weeping prophet. And since Jesus was observed weeping, the through line was drawn that Jesus was Jeremiah, raised from the dead. Jesus uses this now to lead to an even more important question for those who are closest to him. Jesus asked, to his, asked his disciples, what about you? We've heard what the people who have heard about this Jesus think or surmise who Jesus is. And now to those who are very near, whom have spent time under Jesus' training. Jesus now asks them, what about you? Who do you say I am? Peter, the self-appointed spokesman or leader of the group, jumps into the fray with with the first profession of faith. You are Christ, the Son of the living God. This title, this name for Jesus, though common for us, was not common at the original writing. See, congregation, according to my commentary, this expression, Christ, translated to Hebrew is Messiah, and has occurred only in Matthew's narrative. It's now used for the first time by a person to address Jesus directly. It was like a title. It was a title, a translation from Hebrew to describe a Hebrew term for anointed to describe kings, priests, and or prophets. Here in one sentence, Peter's confession shows that he believes, has faith that Jesus is all these things, prophet, priest, and king. Does that sound just a little familiar to your Heidelberg Catechism days? Well, it should. Question answer 31. Why is he called Christ that is anointed? The answer is because he has been ordained by God the Father, anointed with the Holy Spirit, to be our chief prophet and teacher, who has fully revealed to us the secret counsel and will of God concerning our redemption our only high priest, who by one sacrifice of his body has redeemed us, who continually intercedes for us before the Father, and our eternal King, who governs us by his word and spirit, and who defends and preserves us in the redemption obtained for us. Yeah, that statement by Peter is huge. Faith being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is faith, believing in Jesus Christ. On the heels of Peter's pronouncement, Jesus demonstrates God's working with human lives as he says this grand statement, this profession that you just made, Peter, is not from man, but from God. What follows is one of the more contested and dissected pieces of scripture. The question, 
Are Peter and his direct descendants the head of the church forever, or at least till Christ's return, as one branch of Christianity professes? Or ought we interpret Jesus' words slightly different? To be sure, it has been debated much. And since I am obviously not an authority on the subject, I prefer to leave it to wiser theologians. But at the same time, we can't ignore it either. I really like how John MacArthur explains this in his commentary. So I'll quote verbatim from his commentary. The word for Peter, Petros, which means small stone. Jesus uses a play on words with Petra, which means foundation, boulder. Since the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that Christ is both the foundation and the head of the church, it is a mistake to think that he has given either of those roles to Peter. There is a sense that the apostles played a foundational role in the building of the church, but the role of primacy is reserved for Christ alone, not assigned to Peter. So Jesus' words here are best interpreted as a simple play on words, that a boulder-like truth came from the mouth of one who was called a small stone. Let me say it again. Jesus' words here are best interpreted as a simple play on words. A boulder-like truth came from the mouth of one who was called a small stone. Peter himself explains the imagery in his first epistle. The church is built on living stones, like Peter, who confess that Christ, Christ, the Son of the living God, in Christ himself is the chief cornerstone. In the very next section, we find Jesus' ministry shift gears. Jesus is now deliberately going towards Jerusalem so that the Father's will might be accomplished. And God's will is to see the suffering and death of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ. We now see Peter on the opposite end. Jesus has just told disciples, prepared his disciples, of the events that are about to come to pass. And Peter, in his self-appointed leadership, again steps forward to object. But this time, instead of being commended by Jesus, he is chastised. Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Demonstrating how at this point that Peter's faith is weak. Jesus says, you do not have the things of God in mind, but the things of man. Satan is using one of the closest followers of Jesus to try to dissuade Jesus from carrying out the plans of the Father for the redemption of all humankind. We may ask, how is that possible? How is it possible for at one moment, Jesus says, blessed are you, son of Jonah, and seemingly the next moment to say to the same individual, get behind me, Satan. I don't have an answer for that. But for me, I know it sounds weird, it's almost a sense of elation. At least for me, that sense of faith, that sense of being sure of what I hope for, well, that can often be replaced with a sense or a feeling of being less than certain because of what I do not see. There are times in our faith walk 
where we might feel like the superhero. When, like Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And those are awesome times. But there are also times when we feel a lot less than that. We feel unworthy. When we might actually feel like the villain. Maybe feel as though we are being chastised alongside of Peter. In those times, I would like to remind us all, the most vital part of our faith walk is not what we did, but what Christ has done on our behalf. The most vital part of our faith walk is not what we have done, but what Christ has done for us. Returning to the catechism, I'd like us to close together with question and answer 21. Congregation, what is true faith? True faith is not only a knowledge and conviction that everything God reveals in his word is true. It is also a deep-rooted assurance created in me by the Holy Spirit through the gospel that out of sheer grace earned for us by Christ, not only others, but I too have had my sins forgiven and been made forever right with God and have been granted salvation. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we, we draw nigh to you, Lord. We, as we go through this scripture, Lord, we marvel. We marvel at times how strong Peter's faith is. And we envy that. And Lord, there's also times in our lives when we're like, also like Peter, when we seem far from you. We seem at times to work against your plan in our lives. Lord, pray that you would be with us, be with each one of us, Lord. Um, Really help us not to feel too great in the good times and help us not to feel too low in the bad times. Lord, we all have peaks and valleys. Lord, we pray that you would send those of our family, church members, close acquaintances, to come beside us at those times when we feel low. And we all have those times, Lord. Lord, help us to lean on the strength from our loved ones as well. Lord, I pray that you would be with us, Lord, as we move forward, that we also would seek out those who are hurting, those who are feeling low, and that we might be that crutch for them at those times. Lord, we ask these things in your name. Amen. The song responds.